We can turn back to the chapter we read, Luke 18, and we can read again verses 31 to 34. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. I suppose all of us would struggle to say something after a surprising event. We would also struggle after a disappointing event. What would we say when that happens? And we read there from the chapter the event that took place when the rich young ruler came rushing up to Jesus and asked him how he could get eternal life. The disciples would have been delighted, wouldn't they, with such a person as a prospective disciple. So far, The only ruler that has really showed much interest was Nicodemus. Nothing's been heard from him for three years. All of a sudden, here's this individual. And he's not like Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night when hardly anyone could see him. But this young ruler comes in broad daylight. And I suppose the disciples would have said to themselves, this is the kind of man we need. But as we know, Once the man had heard about Jesus' demands, he didn't like it. I went away very sad, and probably the disciples were sad too. Jesus was sad. But what do you think he would say next? What would be the best topic to bring up? Well, we know what he said. He began to speak about his own sufferings and how the Old Testament uh, predicted them. 
The answer to their dilemma was his suffering. We know what he said. Can we suggest other reasons for why he said it? Well, how about Peter's response to the rich young ruler going away? Lord, we've given up everything for you. And Jesus said to him that anyone who gives up such things for me, I'll I'll take care of him in life. And in the world to come, I'll give him eternal life. How's that going to happen? Imagine telling somebody you're going to take care of them and following it up with telling them you're going to die. But that's what he did. And of course, maybe he was saying to Peter, you think your sacrifice is great? And from a certain perspective it was. Because he made a far bigger sacrifice than the rich, than the rich young ruler. But in contrast to the sacrifice of Jesus, what was Peter's sacrifice? In contrast to the sacrifice of Jesus, what is the sacrifice of all the people that he's going to take care of? Anyway, Jesus through their attention to his sacrifice. But he drew their attention to it in a certain way. And the certain way that he did it was to focus on the Old Testament or on the scriptures, what they said about it. That was what he was concerned about. Everything as written about the Son of Man by the prophets. So I'd like us to think about three things. The resolve of Jesus and the revealing of Jesus and the response of the disciples. Resolve, reveal, and response. If we were going to describe something incredible that was about to happen, and we knew all the circumstances about it, what would we include? If we knew some things about it, that had not yet been mentioned, would we be tempted to include them in the description?
What are some of the things that Jesus could have mentioned? Just to help the disciples with their listening to this rather what seems to them gloomy prediction. What could he have mentioned but didn't? But he could have mentioned that a man called Simon of Cyrene would be coming up to Jerusalem to keep the Passover and at the very moment when Jesus was carrying his cross out of the city, this man Simon would be walking in and that he would be compelled by the soldiers to carry the cross of Jesus. And he could have pointed out to them that this man Simon, as a result of that unexpected encounter, that he and his family would become believers. He could have mentioned that, but he didn't. He could have mentioned, of course, that when I do come to die, I will be in between two criminals, and one of them, or both of them, will verbally attack me, but then suddenly one of them, while I'm being put to death, one of them will suddenly turn to me and say, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He could have mentioned that, but he didn't. He could have mentioned what would happen to the people that were crucifying him. He could have said to the disciples, that centurion and his four men will nail me to the cross but I will pray for them. And within a few hours, despite their complete indifference, within a few hours, what they see happening to me on the cross will cause them to confess I'm the Son of God. He could have told them that, but he didn't. He could have told them about Nicodemus. Perhaps the disciples had forgotten all about Nicodemus. The man who came to Jesus by night. But Jesus could have told them, see that man that came three years ago to see me? He's going to take me down from the cross. He's going to publicly identify himself with me. He could have told them that, but he didn't. He could have even told them, you're sad about the ruler turning me down? Well, when it comes to me being taken down from the cross, 
Do you know who's going to do it? A ruler. Joseph Aramathia. At the moment, he's a secret disciple. But I know he's my disciple. And I know what he's going to do. But nobody else will do it. He could have told them that. But he didn't. Why didn't he tell them that? Well, apart from a rather cryptic reference to Joseph of Arimathea about Jesus being with a rich man in his, in his death, none of these incidents are in the Old Testament. And what Jesus wanted his disciples to grasp was what did the Bible say? And therefore he wasn't prepared to reveal to them wonderful details that perhaps could have encouraged them. Rather, he wanted them to focus on the scriptures. What do they say? And what do they say at that particular time when he was facing the cross? These were good things that happened at the cross. He could have told them about bad things. He could have said to them, couldn't he, when I get arrested, I'll be taken to see Herod. And Herod will ask me some questions. But I won't tell him anything. Or he could have said to them, Pontius Pilate will try to set me free, but you'll not be able to, because if he does, his own career's on the line. He could have told them all these things, but he didn't. And the reason why he didn't was he wants his disciples to value the scriptures. What does the Bible say? And of course that was the way he did things, wasn't it? He said to the Jews, didn't he? Search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. That's what they thought. But he kind of corrected their attitude, didn't he? They thought they got eternal life just by engaging in Bible study. But it is possible to engage in Bible study and not get the point. He said to them, you search the scriptures. They are they which testify of me. And the two on the way to Emmaus there he is, coming out of the tomb. Perhaps he could have told them what had happened. His own personal narration of his experience. 
because he had been somewhere where nobody else had ever been. It would be amazing to hear what Jesus would have to say about the experience of divine wrath. And the way the road to Emmaus, he's got a chance to do so, I suppose. But he doesn't. Instead, he takes them to the scriptures, to all the scriptures. Not just a verse here and there, but to all of them, which say that the Christ must suffer. So even after his own triumphant resurrection, he wants them to pay heed to the scriptures. His resolve on that issue never wavered. Even when he meets the disciples later that day, and no doubt there could be many interesting things that they would talk about. He just said to them, This is what I said when I was with you. That what was written in the scriptures would happen to me. He just wanted them to know the Bible. Even though he is the eternal word, the one who understands what happened, he understands it impeccably. But even when he's there personally, he tells them, go to the Bible. He said to the Sadducees on one occasion, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. His resolve never changed. And while all these incidents I just listed are now in the scriptures, and we can read about them, does Jesus say anything from heaven? Does he give us any fresh information about how we should live in the 21st century? We live in a very different time from people in the past. Surely we should get some special instruction. But his resolve hasn't changed. It's still the same. What does the Bible say? There's the answer. The answer to everything. It's an important lesson to learn, isn't it? And it's a challenging question. How well do we know the Bible? Because the Bible 
that helped the first century church to take on the world. It's the same book that the 21st century church uses to take on the world. And even Jesus, in the moment of his agony or in the moments of his triumph, didn't move from that resolve. What do the scriptures say? So here he speaks about what they say about him. And as we read his description of it, he reveals some things about himself. I just want us to think about them briefly. Because he doesn't merely describe, or he doesn't merely say that I'm going to die. But he says how he's going to die. He says what actions people are going to do in connection to my death. And the reason that he's able to list them is because they are already listed in the Old Testament. It's interesting to see how Jesus regards this experience. The last word there of verse 31. It's an amazing word to talk about your death. What kind of death are you going to have? My death, says Jesus, is going to be an accomplishment. It's not going to be a sad end to a promising story. Rather, it's going to be an accomplishment, an achievement. Something that probably cannot be said about any other death. His death was his purpose. And even as he came towards his last breath, is that not what he cried out? It's finished. What I came to do is finished. It's completed. As has been pointed out, the word he uses when he's translated it as finished is the word that a carpenter would use when he finished making a piece of furniture. Completed. Done. And Jesus here says, my death. And of course he's saying it to people who are not listening. His disciples. He says to them, it's going to be an accomplishment. It's not something for you to run away from, he says to them. It's something that's going to be an achievement that will be celebrated not just for centuries, but an achievement that will be celebrated for eternity. So what does he say about himself as we read these verses there, from verse 31 to verse 34? 
Well, surely we can see in them his determination to pay the penalty of sin. I mean, he's not trying to find a way to avoid it, is he? See, we are going up to Jerusalem. I mean, the disciples are going up to Jerusalem for their reasons. They're going up to keep the Passover. And as they see all the enthusiastic um, announcements being made around Jesus as as the week begins, they begin to imagine all kinds of things about how their status is going to rise and they're going to have a very prominent place in the kingdom that is bound to be round the corner. That's what they're going up to Jerusalem for. Why is Jesus going there? He knows why he's going there. He tells them in his verses. He's going to be killed. Why is he going to be killed? Because he's determined to pay the penalty for sin. He's going to go to the cross. I mean, he knows that. He said on another occasion, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how I am straightened until it be accomplished. And that's a wonderful thing to see, a Savior who wants to deliver. And then, of course, there's the solitariness of his suffering. He's gone up to Jerusalem with the disciples. See, we are going. But where he's going, they'll never go. He's going to the cross. He's going to suffer for them. And while they are physically with him, they can't suffer with him. He is going there as their substitute. And he's got to do it alone. No one can help him. But no one needs to help him. He is capable of doing this. If anybody had ever speculated what is required to pay the penalty for sin... I wonder what answer they would have come up with. But Jesus knew the price. The price was himself. He had to bear God's wrath. He suffered alone. And it's a reminder of his uniqueness that he could suffer alone. And he did it for his disciples, for his people. And he knew that. We also see the animosities shown towards him, don't we? The animosities shown towards him by the Jews. There in verse 32, 
for he will be delivered over. What a graphic description of how they treated their Messiah. Judas, he delivered him over for 30 pieces of silver. The Sanhedrin delivered him over and wangled things in order to get him arrested and punished. At the cross, he showed his love. At the cross, his people showed how much they hated him. Away with him. Let him be crucified. Give us Barabbas. We know he's bad, but he's much better than Jesus. That's what they thought of him. They just hated him. And he knew it. I'm going up to Jerusalem to be delivered. He also knew all about the shame, didn't he? As he describes what's going to happen to him there. Once the Gentiles get hold of him, what are they going to do with him? Well, he tells us he's going to be mocked shamefully treated and spit upon and flogged and killed. Is there anything worse than being spat on? It's uh, the ultimate action of complete contempt. He didn't just get it once. He didn't just get it from one person. He knows it's coming. They're going to treat me as the worst of the worst. They're going to spit on me. And no one is going to wipe it off. It will just be left there. He knew all about the shame. Bearing shame. And scoffing rude. In my place, condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Then there's his death. A lot can be said in a few words, can't it? They shall, they will kill him. There's lots of descriptions of Jesus' death in the Bible. 
so many of them, you could almost take one a day and just think about it. And we could be doing that for weeks on end. His death was unjust, wasn't it? He didn't deserve to be there in any way whatsoever. What wrong had he done? He had done nothing wrong. He was humiliated. That's what Paul tells us, isn't it? Voluntary, of course. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death. Even the death of the cross. The worst kind of death that humans could devise. The cruelty, the shame hanging there. And yet, he himself said his death would be quite attractive. Because he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all kinds of people to me. And I suppose we could have, if we had been there, we could have asked him, who are you going to start with? Well, how about the criminal beside him? And the soldiers below him? When does he start to be a magnet? As he draws sinners to himself. Starts right away. And he's been drawing them ever since. And in the death of Jesus, there's the most attractive sight. S-I-G-H-T, that is. As he draws all kinds of sinners to himself. There on the cross, he died a reconciling death. People had put him there because they wanted him to be as far away as possible. He went there because he wanted sinners to be as near as possible to reconcile them to God. And there on the cross, it says the writer of Hebrews, he tasted death. I don't know if you can remember what you had to eat today. But if you tasted it, you would. Jesus tasted death. He's never forgotten it. At the same time, the writer of the Hebrews says, but in tasting death, he destroyed him at the power of death. And in this brief account of his coming visit to Jerusalem, he tells them he knew he would rise again. No one else ever had that experience. 
when Lazarus died, he didn't expect that three or four days later he would be alive. When the son of the widow of Nain, when he died, he didn't expect Jesus to come into the village and raise him up. And even when Jesus' daughter died, they didn't expect Jesus to be able to do anything about it. And the young girl wouldn't have expected it either. Their resurrection was a complete surprise to them. But the resurrection of the Savior, he expected it. And as we read this description that he has, we can see surely his confidence. He's not going up to Jerusalem to be defeated. He's going up to Jerusalem to win. But not only do we see his confidence, but we also see his willingness. There's almost words of enthusiasm there. See, we're going. When do we use that kind of phrase? See, we're going. We do it when we're going to somewhere we want to go to. Because of the effects that we'll have when we get there. Why did Jesus want to go? For our sake. So even this brief description reveals a lot about him. But it didn't reveal anything to the disciples at that moment. Their response, as we can see, was they understood none of these things. They probably knew the Old Testament back to front. A lot of them would have learned vast passages of it by heart. But here, the main subject of their their Bible, it meant nothing to them. There almost seems to be a kind of divine judgment here because the saying was hidden from them. Why was it hidden? Because he had told them many times it was going to happen and they hadn't believed him once. So now he's telling them again and they can't see it. They were being determined not to believe it. And now that he's repeating it, they don't understand any of it. Strange, perhaps, for us to understand that. Because his words, as we read them, are very clear. But sometimes other things blind our vision. And a failure to believe his word can sometimes mean that 
at the time when we need to believe it, it doesn't happen. Matthew Henry says about this particular situation that their disciples, it's only a guess he's making, of course, but he says that their problem was caused by selective reading. They just like to read the passages about glory. But all the passages about his suffering, they didn't want to pay any heed to them. And even when the author himself came along and mentioned them, they didn't want to know. I suppose we can be guilty of selective reading. I asked myself earlier today, do I prefer Psalm 23 to Psalm 1? If I do, that's selective reading. Of course, there can be a lack of care in listening to God's Word. That started with Adam, of course. He didn't listen exactly to what God said and just look at the consequences. Another way of not hearing what God says is by distraction. One man said that most people's hearts are full of clutter, and a heart full of clutter doesn't hear what God's got to say. Is it not the case sometimes that distraction just is enough? And God's message is not heard. The last thing I'm going to mention is this. He didn't say to him, Jesus, we don't understand what you're talking about. Could you explain it to us? There were times when they did that. Like in Matthew 13, when they asked him about the parables. And when they asked him, he told them. And in Matthew 24, they asked him, when's the temple going to be destroyed? And he told them. Anytime they asked him, he told them. And sometimes, at least as far as I'm concerned myself, if I don't ask him what it means, he won't tell me. But then again, what do I have to say to him to ask him? Just the prayer that Eli said to Samuel. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. So that's the resolve of Jesus and the way he revealed himself. That the response of the disciples should, should challenge us. What a moment they missed, even although they were there. May God help us 
to see the value of his word and to fill our minds with it. Shall we pray? Lord, the commitment of the Savior amazes us. He was going up to die for these disciples of his who were not showing the slightest interest in his death. We know that later on they did. But at that moment when he was speaking, they didn't show it because they didn't have it. Lord, help us when we listen to your word just to ask you, Lord, help me to understand what you're saying here. Simple prayer that we may get a very profound answer. So, Lord, help us, we pray, for your own name's sake. Amen. We'll conclude by singing from Psalm 